What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. I just wanted to give you all a heads up that CMX Summit Rise 2021, our theme this year is Rise, is now open for registration. Already over a thousand people have registered in just the first few days. So we're seeing a ton of people coming out who are now interested in the world of community-driven business. We have an incredible lineup of speakers and experts this year. People like Greg Eisenberg from Late Checkout, Sahil Lavingia, Holly Firestone from Venify, some really incredible people, some of the top experts in the world of community and business. And we have tons more to be announced. We'll have over 60 different speakers. This is the first year as well that all of our workshops are going to be completely free for everybody to sign up. So you'll be able to go deep into how to build your communities in a better, more impactful way. It's going to be the biggest event we've ever hosted at CMX. Just go to cmxhub.com slash summit and you can RSVP for free today. We can't wait to see you all there. Today's interview is with Jessica Moreno, who is leading product at Mesh Platform for Community Builders to be able to monetize your communities and build safe communities. She was also the co-founder of a company called Imzy after she was the head of community at Reddit. And Imzy was their approach to building more inclusive and safe communities based on what they learned from Reddit, which back in the day was a lot more toxic and had a lot more problems than it does today. And so they aim to build a more safe and inclusive community. And that's the topic of this interview. We dive into building safe communities, why safe is a false promise because you can never actually build a perfectly safe community online. So you shouldn't promise safety, but you should always try to build safety. And we talk about how to actually do that, how community builders can build more safe communities and how anyone who's building community platforms or community products or really large social networks like the Facebooks or clubhouses of the world, how they can build more safe and inclusive communities. And we also talk about monetization. Jessica has been working in community building for a long time and trying to help community builders monetize the work they're doing. That's part of the core premise of Mesh and what they're building. So we talk about some of the challenges that come with monetizing communities, why it's harder for community builders to monetize than maybe it is for other creators and what the future of community monetization looks like. Lots of good stuff in this one. Hope you all enjoy. Let's dive in. And just a quick ask, we are working really hard to put this podcast together for you every week and bring you the top experts in the world of community. We spend hours and hours putting together these shows and curating guests and researching them and making the show great for you. We'd really, really appreciate it if you could just drop a review on Apple and make sure to subscribe anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Those subscriber numbers and those reviews really help us move up the rankings for podcasts and help us get discovered by more people. So please just take literally like pause, just take 30 seconds right now to drop that review and subscribe. We really appreciate it. It'll be a huge help. 
All right. Thanks so much. Let's dive into today's episode. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to have you here. Longtime fan of the work that you've done and the products you've built and the companies you've built and the communities you've worked on. You are a veteran of the community industry. You've been working in lots of different companies on the product side, on the community side, on the founder side. So you have kind of a breadth of experience. Could you just maybe share a little bit about your backstory and your work at Reddit, your work at IMSI and the work you're doing today and help our guests learn a little bit about who you are? Yeah. In 2009, my husband at the time, Dan McComas, had an idea on Reddit. He posted just a question to ask Reddit, would anybody like to do a secret Santa? And by the next day, there were a couple thousand responses of people who wanted to join that. So he's an engineer. So he started building what would become Reddit GIFs, the website. We had nothing to do with Reddit at that time. It was just an idea and the name had to be chosen quickly. So it was not a good name. And we thought we'd get a cease and desist but it lasted. (laughs) So we started that. And by the time we were ready to launch, we had about 4,000 people signed up. And by the time we were done, it was basically, it was just an online secret Santa. So you signed up, you gave your information, and then we matched you with somebody else. So you would get somebody to send to, somebody would get you to send to you. It was like a daisy chain around the world of gift giving. And by the end of that Christmas, it had sort of become like a full-time job for both of us, the amount of work that went into it. But we also didn't want it to stop. So we created another holiday, Arbitrary Day, which was named by the community on Reddit and is basically also known as Summer Santa. So it's just like, give a gift because like there's no reason for it. Right. So basically, we just kept going with it. It kept growing. We kept adding exchanges. So there's all these like niche little exchanges around different topics and interests. And it really did become a full-time job. Like There was no way we were going to be able to sustain it. And luckily, Reddit decided to acquire us. So we became part of Reddit in 2011. I continued working on that for a few more years. And then in 2014, I believe, that was when there was a big shakeup at Reddit and Mm -hmm. Yishan Wang left and Ellen Powell became the CEO. Mm -hmm. And she came to me about being head of community at Reddit proper. So of course, that was an exciting opportunity that I don't think any community manager would necessarily turn down. So (laughs) I did that. And... My time there was mostly spent on, like, I managed the community team, but it was mostly spent on policy work, figuring out how we could basically make the site a bit better because it was so toxic at that time. So, my first task was banning revenge porn. And that actually was really easy. There are a few people who were concerned about all of the pornography that they might lose. And we promised them that that's not, you know, we're not going to take it away. (laughs) It's just revenge porn. (laughs) So, like, If you can let go of that, then you're fine. And so there wasn't a lot of arguing about it. And then we banned harassment, which was a whole different story. People are apparently really attached to being able to harass people Mm. on Reddit. So that's when I started getting death threats and rape threats and all the fun stuff that goes along with that. And so after that, I was there for a couple more months and was like, why am I still here when this is what I'm dealing with now? Like, how much benefit is this giving to me? It was actually really hard to leave, but I did decide that it was time to go. I didn't really want that much negativity constantly. There just isn't a lot of like support coming back at you. So it's pretty much just becomes all negative. And Dan and I decided to build IMSI. And the point of IMSI was to be an alternative to that kind of atmosphere. We wanted to build something that from the beginning, it's set up to be a place that 
has user safety in mind, that has the ability to just exist in your community in mind. Like, just come here, build your community. You're not going to get harassed over something that you say. Like, you can just exist without all of the drama that goes on on these other platforms. And it was really good. I mean, it obviously it didn't last very long, but what we had was good. And currently, I'm working with another community platform called Mesh Communities. And what we are doing is similar to what we were doing at IMSI. We're trying to provide a place for more inclusive, positive communities to exist where they can do that safely, as safely as possible. And hopefully, we can allow these communities to exist and the, the leaders to monetize their communities if they need to. And we have different ways of doing that that we can talk about later. But that's where I'm at now. Yeah. So it's been quite a journey through many different community platforms. A lot of your experience, a lot of what you've built is around this topic of safety in online communities. But I've also heard you say that you hate using the word safe when it comes to communities. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Yeah. it's. I mean, you have to use it. Obviously, it's the only way you can describe it. But to say something is safe, I just think it's misleading on the internet. It's impossible for it to be truly 100% safe. Like. Mm. It's not entirely private. You can't stop all malicious behavior. And if you say it's safe, then people expect a level of safety that maybe you can't really provide. And it's not healthy for them to expect it because that leaves them vulnerable. So if you can admit that it's not 100%, you're always trying to make it better. You're doing the best that you can. But it's not 100%. You can educate people on how they can protect themselves as well. And I think that's mm. the way to deal with that. So it's overpromising. And a lot of people come to the internet without knowing how bad it can be. Right. So, like, I mean, this is a weird example, maybe, but I recently started playing Words of Friends. Someone invited me, I started playing. Seems really benign. As soon as I was on there, I started getting requests from men to play games. Fine. Then I realized they can chat with you. Like, okay, we'll see. Every single one of them is a scammer and they start by being very friendly, but it quickly turns super personal. And all of a sudden, they're in love with you and they want you to chat on a different platform. And then they want you to invest in something. So it's basically a romance scam that turns into a financial scam. And it's incessant, like it's constant. So that could be... There are so many things they could do to make that better and to stop it, but they're just not. I don't know why I would love to talk to them. But it's just terrible. And I can see how somebody who is older, who doesn't have the experience, doesn't know that these scams exist, or somebody who's just vulnerable at that time, really lonely could be yeah. taken in by it and end up in something they didn't expect. It's just... And it's a game. It's a simple little game. Yeah. Like even fun. Words of Friends isn't yeah. safe. No. I was really shocked by that. Jeez. Yeah. I've heard people use the phrasing brave spaces instead of safe spaces because I guess of that same criticism of calling something safe. Yeah. If you're revealing yourself and you're putting yourself out there on the internet, it is brave. I mean, yeah. You have to be brave to be here. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. So... <laughs> Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess it's more of an issue with the terminology, but not with the responsibility no. and the practice of actually trying to make these spaces yeah. as safe as possible. Yeah. Everything I do is that's like baked into what I do is like user safety is always on my mind. And it's just I don't think it's thought about enough on all platforms. So I take it really, really seriously. And I just think that presenting it as safe, like just using the word safe, it just implies something that it isn't truly. So mm-hmm. always make it the safest that you can, but educate people on what can happen. I mean, mm-hmm. screenshots, you cannot stop screenshots. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying something super personal, it might get out. 
Right. Even in a community that claims to say like what's shared here stays here, you, exactly. you have no control over that. There's a lot of just having to put trust in other members. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with massive groups of members who are all strangers, yeah. you just have no idea. It's impossible. Yeah. And doing Reddit gifts, we had so much personal information. Like it was amazing what people gave us and how much trust was put in us. And I think that might be where that comes from in me. I was so protective of their personal information. Was, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's another, it's another thing a lot of community <laughs> builders don't realize how much personal information they're mm-hmm. going to get and their responsibility with that information. So yeah, I'd love to dive into the topic of how do we build more safe platforms? So looking back at Reddit, what were the things that Reddit didn't do or could have done that would have made it more safe that you intentionally built into Whimsy? It sounds... I think at this point in time, it sounds pretty basic, but they just didn't do things that I think we would do now. Like ban revenge porn. <laughs> yeah. Like a code of conduct that encompasses fruit. things other than like, don't be illegal. Sure. Or whatever, like something that actually addresses these issues and then enforcing them. But also having a community staff for your community website. They had, I believe when I started, they had a part-time community manager mm-hmm. on contract. And then there was one community manager for a really long time. And right before I became head of community, they had added a couple more in the past couple of years before that. But that was already like eight years in. Like, So one person running... Yeah. <laughs> and I'm blowing that Reddit didn't have more of a community team at the time. When I left, there were only maybe nine people on the team. With wow. me leaving, would be like eight. So yeah. it's grown massively and sure. like, they've changed things a lot since then, which is great. But yeah. we didn't even have a trust and safety team. It was just, I was going to say, did you? No. <laughs> yeah. We made all kinds of decisions there. Yeah. And it's well, because like it's easy to now look back and kind of say, like, well, how could Reddit do that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's so wrong. But that was just kind of the standard back then. No online social media platform had really elaborate community teams or trust and safety teams. Most people who built them weren't even intending to build a community platform. So (laughs) they weren't expecting that and they didn't have the experience. And Mm. probably being of the demographic they generally were had not been accustomed to being a target on the internet, having been stalked or harassed or anything like that. So they're not thinking of those issues that some of us have to think about all the time. Yeah. Believe it or not, I've never been approached by men on words with friends. (laughs) Somehow I've avoided that. I don't know what it is about me. I don't know. (laughs) uh, Has kept me so safe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. So many of the people who are building a lot of these platforms are white males who don't get to experience that kind of persistent trolling and spam and attacks and all that that women and people of color do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. There's also, I think that every time you build a tool or a feature, you should think about how it can be abused. Like how can this be weaponized? Because most benign things can be weaponized, just like the chat feature on Words with Friends. Mm -hmm. Like that should be fun, but it's not. So you have to think about how is the worst person going to use this thing? Mm. And how can you mitigate it? It doesn't mean you don't build the thing, but you need to think about how it's going to happen and what you can do when and if it does. Yeah. So what do you think is the responsibility of the platform to solve for these problems with technology versus with training Mm -hmm. and moderation for companies like Facebook that has all these Facebook group moderators? Is it about training those people on how to manage it because the technology will only go so far? Or Clubhouse, which we've heard a lot of 
things that they didn't done wrong leading and kind of creating a, a more safe community, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on too. Mm-hmm. But it's people who are hosting these spaces who are ultimately in a position of power to control what happens mm-hmm. in those spaces. How do you think about the human responsibility versus the technology responsibility? I think that if you can build technology that addresses an issue properly, then yes, do it. The more you can save actual humans from having to view and having to deal with, the better it is for them. Like I've seen some things like on Reddit that no one should have to see. And if we had a way to filter things out, that would have been really good. That would be really helpful for the people who actually have to do that work. But at the same time, like on Facebook, it's not 100%. You need human beings making sure that it's working correctly or else you get things improperly flagged and taken down for no reason. And people end up in you know what they call Facebook jail. They didn't actually do anything wrong. Like maybe there was a word that out of context could be something bad, but they got reported and it's just not correct. So it's kind of a balance of those things. Like innovate on the technology wherever you can, but don't think that you can do without people. People are what really like that's we can read the context. We know like what's actually happening. So and that's really important. Cool. So with Imzi, you approached it from a cultural standpoint of having guidelines and rules. Mm-hmm. Were there things that you built into the product and what worked well? I mean, ultimately, MZ lasted a couple of years and you decided to shut it down. I'm curious, like what went well and then what didn't work that resulted in it coming to an end? Yeah. Well, our main, the premise of it, we were correct. We knew what we wanted and we were, I believe we were correct in what we were building and people did want a platform like that that was basically, I mean, you can just break it down to being Nazi free. Like we weren't going to tolerate that. We had rules against it and we were not afraid to like impose them on people. So if you start a Nazi community, we're going to ban it and you'll probably be banned too. And that sounds again, really basic. Like that's not hard, except apparently it is really hard (laughs) for a lot of people to stick to that. So that was our main purpose was just to build something where you could, where it was inclusive of all different kinds of people, except not hate. And we also started building a way to for communities to monetize so that you could basically donate to the community leader who's running this community. And that was the thing that broke. That was the thing that we couldn't really get right. But the reason we closed was actually everything was on track as far as we were concerned, but our investors were not as happy without hockey stick growth. At some point, they were like ready for everything to take off. But I don't think that's a healthy way for a community to start. I think that that's how you end up with a lot of terrible things happening and you have no control over it because you're not staffed for that level yet. So we were given mm-hmm. a short time to come up with a better idea and we decided we didn't want to do that. So we gave the money back. We didn't want to build something that wasn't what we really wanted. Mm. Yeah. It's a really interesting point, one that I've thought about too, whereas the venture capital model is built for rapid growth. Mm-hmm. but I think there's very few examples of a group growing extremely rapidly Mm -hmm. and that not coming at the cost of quality of community, of that level of trust and safety. And I think Clubhouse is potentially a good example of this, Mm -hmm. right? Like while small, yeah, you can kind of manage it and design the culture. And I actually think they did a pretty good job of building a diverse community Mm -hmm. from the vantage point that I saw, which was cool to see. And highlighting underrepresented voices and making sure there was diversity of backgrounds and perspectives Mm -hmm. and ethnicity. And that part was good, but then it just blew up 
so fast Mm -hmm. and there's just no way like for a lot of us who kind of stand on a soapbox and say like, well, these are all the things that they should have done. It's like, there was no way, there was no way that they would have been able to keep that place safe at the scale of their growth. And even with it being invite only, having yeah all these restrictions on joining, it still grew too fast for them to really address. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, I'm not, I don't want hockey stick growth. I never do. Not with mm. the community. It's just like, you have to be patient. So for the people out there who are building communities that they hope will be a really great, successful big business, um, many of them who have raised venture capital, what do you think is the approach that allows them to still have the end goal of building a really successful community that is also a successful business mm-hmm. without sacrificing safety and the quality of community in order to achieve that growth? I'm really not sure how to do it quickly and safely. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not something that, like, I would never promise that. But it's like we were really honest with what we felt we should do with MC. Mm-hmm. And same with what I'm doing now at Mesh. We're not trying to, like, have hockey stick growth because we really value the safety. We value bringing on communities that are aligned with our mission and who we can serve properly. So, mm. yeah, it's a different mindset, really. Mm. And you uh, community funded Mesh as well, right? We're starting to do that. Yeah, we funder. It's not launched yet, but it will be soon. Okay. How did you fund Mesh so far? It's been little investments here and there. Uh, we don't really have VC backing. We have just like sort of friends and family backing, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's kind of being pieced together and always in danger. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I bootstrapped uh, CMX for five years before oh, that acquisition, so I understand. <laughs> so, would you say? You agree with the statement that building healthy communities is incompatible with the venture capital model? I don't think it has to be. Yeah. I mean, you just really need venture capitalists to actually understand what you're doing, which mm-hmm. isn't common. Well, because at the end of the day, the venture capitalist still needs to see the potential for a mm-hmm. unicorn outcome, a billion yeah. dollar plus outcome. That's the so, thing is, I'm just not naturally a unicorn. You're not? <laughs> I don't. No. Like, you don't got that unicorn energy? I don't want to be a billionaire. <laughs> I think it's gross. Okay. So for you for you personally, incompatible with the venture capital model, you've kind learned Kind of. That. Yeah. yeah. Like, I want one who's more ethical than that, who's thinking about the details rather than just the outcome. Sure. I think there are ethical there are. VCs out yeah. there too. But the outcome is like a non-negotiable for... It's, it's the <laughs> yeah. premise of the format of investment. Yeah. Right? But so if they can be patient, with the model and let it be built the way that it should be, they could get what they want. It just might not be tomorrow. It might be a little farther down the road than they want. So do you think there's pieces you can put in place that would scale when a community does start growing really quickly? Because like for a VC, they're not going to invest in something that has linear growth. They only want something that's exponential growth, especially when it comes to social networks and communities. Mm -hmm. So whether or not they, let's say they're like, cool, I'll wait 10 years for this mm-hmm. thing to get to the size we need it to be. They're still not going to expect it to be like linear growth to no, that 10-year yeah. point. They're going to expect at some point, there's going to be an inflection point mm-hmm. where it's going to start to grow exponentially. Do you think that there are things that community teams and products and technology can do to put into place that would scale with that community rapidly? Yeah, I think that it helps to think through moderation tools early and build a proper suite of moderation tools so that 
the people who are running the communities can manage their communities properly without too much friction doing it. Mm. And it goes back to a code of conduct again, too, that if you have that there for them to reference, you have the stated rules. This is what has to happen and what can't happen. That gives them something to say, like, this is a rule. I have to kick you out. Like they have something mm. hold, like backing them up in their decisions. So they're not alone in it. Because it is hard. It's hard to be that person who has to do like the dirty work in a community. But it's also important to be able to do it. And I think most people want to, when they're running a community, they want it to be healthy. Sure. But if it's made difficult by the platform not having the tools or the rules being so broad that like it allows too much that doesn't cover the gray areas, mm-hmm. you know, like you have rules that cover these tiny little bits of things that can go wrong without acknowledging that people will push the edges, like they'll push the boundaries. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. They'll make something as close to wrong as possible while staying on the right side. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they will. I think that's really interesting because if you look at how most communities start and develop and evolve over time, it always starts with very broad general rules, Mm -hmm. usually because the people starting it are new to it as well and they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have the experience of seeing how people push those boundaries over time. Also, because they want to keep it simple. It's 10 people. We don't want to have a thousand rules for 10 people. We all know each other. It's cool. Like the don't be a dick rule, usually like... That was our first rule at Reddit Gifts. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like it's the standard rule that community builders have at first. Uh And then someone's like kind of a dick and they like push that boundary. And you're like, all right, we need to be a little more specific about the the kind of ways that you're not supposed to be a dick. I'll mm-hmm. stop saying that word now. <laughs> but but like it starts really broad and then it gets more and more specific as things happen mm-hmm. and it evolves. But there's kind of always like a little bit of delay, right? Because people take these actions and then you respond with like, oh, we need a rule for that. Yes. And so is that kind of what breaks when you move really fast? Because all of a sudden, all of the rules are challenged all yeah. by thousands or millions of people all at once. And there's just no way your rules could catch up to now what the culture has become. Yeah. And there are things that you cannot expect. Like there, People will come up with new things all the time that you don't have in your rules. So you have to be able to move quickly on those things as well. It's just Mm. people are very creative with Mm -hmm. how they abuse the internet. So yes, yeah. People always want transparency. They want very defined rules. But in the end, like you have to leave room for gray areas and you can't tell everybody every single thing that you do because of breaking the rules or else it just gives people ways to, again, get right up to breaking the rule without actually breaking it. I mean, look at like society, right? Like our laws, like still (laughs) being adapted every day and are still really Mm -hmm. bad in a lot of ways and really hurtful for some specific people. So like society as one of the longest versions of a community that we've been trying to create guidelines around. And it's still very, very, very far from perfect. So, Especially adding the internet into our society, the laws. Well, that's the thing. This internet made society so much bigger in terms of how we have to coexist. Because Mm -hmm. before the internet, the biggest group you can possibly have to coexist in was what, maybe your local city, your state, or you could say your whole country, but you're not really coexisting with all those people. But now with a community like Facebook, like Reddit, like Clubhouse, you're literally coexisting in a space with millions and millions and millions of people. And of course, even in the country, in the US, you have distributed governance, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have the local laws and they roll up into large laws. But a lot of these platforms, it's just like one body of rules and guidelines is governing 
millions and millions and millions of people. And the only distributed responsibilities of moderation mm-hmm. go to either moderators who are these like contractors who are just looking at awful stuff online, yeah. or it's these group leaders or clubhouse room leaders mm-hmm. who are just regular people who didn't plan on managing spaces of thousands of people. They yeah. just like started a conversation and they're not necessarily exactly. equipped with the tools or the training on how to manage those groups. Yeah, I think it would be helpful if you're going to have a lot of moderators, if volunteer people doing that work, which is normal and good, like you want to let people build the communities they want. So I'm all the way on board with that. But providing uh, resources for them to learn more about best practices and to have more support in what they're doing so that they can feel more confident and just understand it more. I think that would be helpful. When I started, there was, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even read Reddit's rules. I had no idea. I made my mm. own rules for Reddit gifts and I didn't read their rules until I think I got hired by them. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> like, I was just doing whatever we thought was right. Yeah. How do you think Reddit's doing today? I think they're doing good. I don't know the details really. It's sure. kind of, I, I left there a little bit traumatized, so I don't really sure. do a lot there. Yeah. But from what I can tell, as at least the structure of the community team is much better. That I know. They have a trust and safety team now, which is huge. They have a legal team now, which I made a lot of decisions I had no business making. Mm. So <laughs> they've just gotten much more really professional about it, like doing it the way it should be done instead of just sort of this ragtag thing that kind of grew out of... It was just... When we were acquired in 2011, it was like five engineers and then a part-time yeah. community person. So it grew from that and took a while to really structure itself, I think. So I think they're doing oh. really well now though. Yeah. yeah. It seems from my vantage point, they've made a lot of really big investments, a lot mm-hmm. of new sweeping rules on mm-hmm. what's allowed or not allowed and yeah. moderation practices. The team is really solid now mm-hmm. as well. This brought on Laura Nestler as well from Duolingo. She's oh, wow. she's a pretty incredible community builder. So yeah. Okay. So practically the advice that you would have for somebody who is building a community, hopes that it will be very big one day, mm-hmm. but wants to make sure that you do it the right way, not to make it a perfectly safe community because that's impossible, mm-hmm. but to make it as safe as possible, what would be like the key points that they should focus on? It goes back to the code of conduct again. Like code I, of always, conduct. I, I feel bad I have the same answer for a lot of questions. but No, no. I'm kind of just yeah. recapping what we just talked about. Okay. But I want to <laughs> be clear about like for someone who's trying to get a takeaway from this, it's like get a code yeah. of conduct in place. I think that's really the fundamental... That's like what you're building on top of. So if you can make a solid code of conduct that is aligned with your values and your mission for the community so that you can create what you really want and you can avoid creating an accidental catastrophe of the community, that's what you want. You want a solid foundation to build on. How should they go about designing that code of conduct for someone who's never done that before? Are there examples? Should they just copy another community's code of conduct? How should they There are it? examples. They should really look around, like read if there's something that you like, read their code of conduct. Just go through all of them. And there are some that are I forget the name of the group. It's a design group. And they allow you to take their code of conduct and you can alter it. You can use it, just credit them and or credit whoever originally made it. And it's wonderful. I need to look it up and like We'll have the resource for people. Yeah, um, we'll find input in the yeah. show. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. So the information is out there. You can piecemeal it together from things that you like, or you can find something like that and create, like build it to be your own. Got it. And you could also involve the community is something I've seen done well too, mm-hmm. is ask them, like, what are the guidelines that you want to see here? What yeah. will make you feel safe in this space mm-hmm. and co-create it? 
Hi everyone, Anne-Marie Pollocky-Dinkle here, event manager at CMX, and I am crashing this podcast to cordially invite you all to CMX Summit 2021 Rise. On August 31st through September 2nd, join seasoned practitioners, emerging leaders, and industry experts for three jam-packed days of speakers, hands-on workshops, and networking with the world's largest group of community builders. Everything you need to rise up and thrive. Head over to cmxhub.com to RSVP now. See you there. Okay, so you have your set of guidelines in place. What should they do then to make sure that they aren't just a list of guidelines that no one ever reads and is actually something that's enforced and applied to the community? That is hard because people won't read them. So the important thing is to make sure that the community leaders know that they're there and that they matter and that they have to enforce them. So if you can do that, then you have the community leaders who are invested in maintaining the code of conduct the way that it was laid out. And usually like they're going to want to maintain the atmosphere that they created anyway. Like They're going to be on board with doing that work. They just need to understand it and know that they're supported in doing it. I think that's an important key part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's assuming you have community leaders, right? For some yeah. some early stage communities, it's like you're the leader and everyone else is a member. But then you as have to it be scales, ready to do all of it. <laughs> yeah. You have to be ready to do all of it. But I think yeah. that's that's another thing I found is extremely important for scaling it as well, right? It's like mm-hmm. having distributed leadership so that as it grows, you have people who are on the ground closer to the members mm-hmm. of the community who can help manage and enforce and drive yeah. that culture forward. Absolutely. And having just community members who are really invested, they sort of they also want to maintain the standards that they've come to have and appreciate in the community. They'll naturally be your helpers. It's just sort of like what ends up happening for the people who are super dedicated. And then you have a choice, you know, if you structure your community that way, you can turn them into moderators. You can have them as official helpers for you. Or you can just let it go as like these people who are super invested and naturally help. And one more thing on crafting the guidelines. We said earlier I don't have the experience that you have on the internet because men don't get the same kind of treatment that women do. People of color don't have the same Mm -hmm. experience that we have. So how should community builders go about identifying guidelines that make the community more inclusive for people who may not look like them, Mm -hmm. guidelines that they won't think of? I think for that, you can talk to your community members and ask them, or you can, again, look around at other communities and see what's happening look up the issues. There are articles out there. So there's information out there that you can find and you can learn about the things that happen if they don't happen to you. So I think that it's a matter of self-education at that point. Yeah, that's actually something we found useful was to find community guidelines from groups specifically Mm -hmm. built for those groups of an underrepresented identity or minority. They've crafted their guidelines specifically for those groups. And so that's a really good place to get inspiration from Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I want to talk about monetization a little bit too, because you have a lot of experience and lessons with that. I guess on a high level, first, like what have you learned about monetization for communities? Because it's certainly still a topic that so many people are trying to figure out. I just had a conversation today with one of the biggest community platforms in the world, and Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out, well, like creators are now having all these ways of monetizing. A community mm-hmm. builder is like kind of like a creator, but it's different. And mm-hmm. we still haven't figured out how to help community builders sustainably monetize the work they're doing. So what have you learned about that so far? 
just from my personal experience at Reddit Gifts, like it really is so much work to run a community when it grows. Yes. And everything that goes into it, there are costs aside from your time. So I understand that there are people who need some kind of monetary support to keep it going and to keep running it the way that they want to. And so now you have Patreon. So you could have that. Or community platforms could make it easier to do it just there, like have it built into the system so that they can monetize right there. And what we're doing with Mesh is we're starting with tips. So basically like a one-time donation if you want to for your community leaders. And what we found at Reddit Gifts again is that people wanted to give to us. Like really early on, there were people who were invested and wanted to see it succeed and wanted to help. But there wasn't really any way for us to let them do that at that time. So if we can provide that for people and just make it super easy for people to give, it's going to happen. There are people who just are like dying to do that. They want to support their community leaders. And then beyond that, we're going to have a subscription model. We're going to have paid content. It's just like we're in the early steps of developing those things right now. Yeah. But they are creators in a way. They create a space and they create sure. conversations and this experience really. So they do need to be compensated in a way similar to creators. They do, but they are different from a lot of creators, right? Mm -hmm. I think the challenges that I've been seeing are a creator on Patreon. Let's say you're a podcaster. Mm -hmm. You are creating the content. People are consuming it. It has Mm -hmm. more of this one-to-many. It's more of an audience and a community. Absolutely. And so people are paying you for that content. You give them exclusive content. Mm -hmm. You give them premium content, things like that. A community builder isn't creating all the value. They're creating a space for people to create value for each other. So that on its own is a fundamental difference that makes it feel weirder for a community builder to ask for money for. I think if you look at the time spent, the time and energy spent, which I think most people don't know, which I think is one of the problems, it really is so much work that they do deserve compensation for providing the space. That's like, if you have... A community center, like a physical space where people come in, like you deserve something for running that place. And it's sort of, it's just the internet version of that. Yeah. But I guess it's different. I think an important clarification is that people don't pay you for the time you put into something. They pay you for the value they get out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so community builders are putting a ton of time into moderating, managing, Mm -hmm. building. But if the people who are receiving that value, don't perceive it as worth paying for, then they don't perceive it. They're not going to pay. There's also this component of community that default people see community as something that should be free Mm -hmm. and should be accessible and open. And if you start charging for it, now you're putting up gates and and a walled garden and things like that, which Mm -hmm. make it harder as well to say like, well, I'm charging for membership. Now, what does that do to our ability to reach more people or make it more inclusive? I think when it comes to memberships, there are some groups that are just sort of designed that way. It's for a specific type of person. So those are the people who are willing to pay to go to it. But for the most part, they are free and open and should remain that way, which is one reason I personally like the tips feature because I might want to donate to somebody to help them keep going, but I don't necessarily want to keep everybody else out. Yeah. Yeah, tips is an interesting one. I feel like I have opinions and I haven't really thought about it right now, <laughs> but there's something about a tip that makes it feel like we're still not valuing yeah. the work that the community professional and the value that they're providing. It's kind of like donation. Yeah. 
And, is, and we still tend to think of communities as these like for good, nice things. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, here's a tip rather than like, no, they are creating real tangible value for right. you and putting real work in. And there's like a cultural shift that I think will probably start to happen as more people get into this line of work as a profession mm-hmm. where we start to say like, no, this is something that you should pay for. I think that a hard thing is that People, just regular people want to start their groups. They want to start communities. They're not community professionals. So yeah, they're not right. going to necessarily get a job doing that or be paid to do it. So there has to be a way to compensate them as well as people who are professionals. I see them as entrepreneurs. Yeah, exactly. They're community entrepreneurs. Their product is community. Mm-hmm. But it is hard because we don't want to just charge for membership in right. a lot of cases. Sometimes there's like a premium version of the community, mm-hmm. but now you're splitting up the community mm-hmm. spaces. I think like where I've seen it work well is this hybrid of you have the community space, but it's not necessarily what you're charging for. And then you mm-hmm. have separate content that you do exactly. charge for. Or yes. the other way around, you give away content for free, but then you people then pay you, for people, access to mm-hmm. like... The community, but even still, they're not paying for the like network. They're paying for access to the community resources, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like uh, yeah. Lenny Ratitsky does a really good job with that with his newsletter. It's like free mm-hmm. newsletter really blew up because he provided so much value to people. And he said, Hey, if you become a paid subscriber, you're going to get access to all these resources yeah. and my Slack community and all these other things. Is, is that are you seeing those kinds of models form where it's kind of a hybrid? You're a content creator yeah. and a community builder. Yeah, that's basically how I envision it working best in the future, at least for now. I think that gives people sort of the best of both of those worlds that like they can have, you can have your open community or your free content and then have the thing that people have to like be a little bit more dedicated to mm-hmm. get involved in. I don't think that's evil. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't like charging for communities. It's not in my nature. So. Like when we at Reddit Gifts and we made the elves program, which is basically like sort of like Reddit gold, except for elves. That was hard for me. I didn't want there to be any difference. I didn't want any group to be more special than another. I didn't want anybody to have anything anybody else didn't. So yeah. that was hard for me to yeah. adjust with, but I understand. So the flip way of thinking about it, I think, could be that you charge for it because by default, people who can't afford it should pay for it. Mm-hmm. But then you have programs that make it accessible to people who can't afford it so that they still have access to it. But even like really, (laughs) it really like crunchy hippie community, like look at Burning Man, like you still have to pay for a ticket, right? You still have to, (laughs) like events are actually a good kind of comparison because for some reason we look at online community, we're like, it feels evil or weird to charge Mm -hmm. for it. But most events you have to pay for in part because of scarcity. There's literally limited space, physical Mm -hmm. space. But you could say the same for online community. If you want to keep it safe and authentic, you have to limit the amount of space in there. I think one of the reasons that it's difficult is people do expect free things on the internet. It was sort of built that way in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knew how to monetize it Mm -hmm. or if they even should, I think, in a lot of terms, in a lot of situations. So now we're at a place where we realize these are businesses and we do need to be paid for them. You can't do everything forever without any money. So how do we actually make that happen? Mm-hmm. And people are kind of off put by that a lot of times, just like, mm-hmm. but I've had this for free forever. So why should I give yeah, you money now? I should pay now. Yeah. Yeah. And the reality is, there's a low barrier to entry. So if you start charging for a community and people don't want to pay for it, they can quite easily launch a Facebook group or some yes. other community really fast and say, like, here's a free version of that. Yes, and, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. There are so many issues around mm. this that it's really like, 
yeah, it's a big problem to solve. Last thought on this. I'm curious, have you given thought to the idea of community-owned businesses where I think on the simplest level is kind of what you're doing, where it's community Mm -hmm. funding so people who can invest can have ownership. But ultimately, a really interesting path that I'm hearing more people talk about, but I haven't seen done well in practice Mm -hmm. yet, is like social tokens or decentralized communities that use the blockchain to essentially say like, people who are members and contribute can gain ownership and then it becomes almost a currency in its own right. And Mm -hmm. that can be used to fund the community itself. That's an interesting concept. Still concept. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that having it community owned, if you can bring value to the people who are helping you create value, who are creating the value for your product, I think that's good. I think that people should be able to benefit from that situation. So I see that as a possible good thing depending on how it really pans out. Mm. I haven't really seen it. So yeah, I don't know, but I like the idea of yeah. community owned. Seems like that's potentially the only real solution mm-hmm. is if we can figure out a way where the actual exchange of value in a community is... Uh, the trade-off is then it becomes transactional and mm-hmm. instead of intrinsic. Yeah, that's another issue. With, there was a survey. Oh, it's been a few years now, but of moderators on various platforms asking if they would want to be paid. Yeah. I think the majority of them said no at that time. Wow. Because they felt like they were doing it for fun. They, yeah. And if it became a job, it would have a different feeling. So that's another thing to always consider when monetizing communities. Just how is this really going to feel? Complex topic. It is. For sure. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I think for those who are trying to figure this out, I think either you're doing it for a business and so your monetization is coming through selling a software product or something mm-hmm. like that. Or your community is your product itself. And the ways to monetize are either to build a product that you can sell to that community, mm-hmm. to you can charge for membership, but that comes with trade offs, or you charge for access to that community, like mm-hmm. advertising or sponsorships or partnerships where companies want to reach that community. That's one thing that we're building into Mesh is oh, yeah. a sort of non traditional form of advertising. We're going to have essentially a marketplace for businesses to say, yes, we would like to advertise on Mesh. And then community leaders can go there and decide whether or not they want advertisers to advertise in their communities. So like we have a community called Houseplant Hobbyists. Mm -hmm. So it's all houseplants. And it's a really big community. It's very popular and it's really well done. So if we have in that marketplace, a plant store, a gardening store, all these things that relate to planting plants and having houseplants, maybe they would want that advertising in their group. And then they would also get to keep a lot of the profits from that. So we would take a tiny, a little bit for Mesh because of course, but they would get the majority of it. Yeah, And so that's another way that they would be able to monetize. And it's, a, I think, a more ethical way of using advertising. That way it's a win-win for the community gets to see something they might actually want to buy. And the advertisers get a community that is definitely interested. So it's Mm. like not just throwing it out there and seeing what sticks. Yeah, that's cool. You can even go deeper with advertising and actually do like partnerships between brands Mm -hmm. and communities because yeah, now more and more brands are trying to reach communities and Mm -hmm. partner with them and reach their audience. And it's hard for community builders, especially if they're just like an indie Mm -hmm. community entrepreneur to find a big brand to work with. So we want to facilitate those connections, basically. Yeah. I did that many years ago. My, uh, like the first company I started was called Blog Dash. And we did that for bloggers and businesses. Interesting. 2010. 
Yeah. If you think back when blogging was cool, <laughs> same idea. And yeah. yeah, blogging kind of faded now. But for a while, they kind of now, but I mean, now you have the whole like influencer marketing industry. Yeah. And so again, if we look at community builders like creators, the same way brands work with creators, there's no reason they couldn't also work with community builders. Especially if it's a community that's built around what your brand does. Like let's exactly. say you're an independent makeup company and there's a beauty community. You could work together and you just need somebody to sort of like make that connection happen. Exactly. Love make it. it easy for both parties to do. Because exactly. I as like a community leader a long time ago, I wouldn't have known how to deal with advertising at all. It wouldn't even be on my radar. Yeah. So you have to provide the education and the access. Mm-hmm. And the process, just make it as easy mm-hmm. as possible. So community yes. builders focus on building community. And if mm-hmm. we can make it easy for them to monetize, everyone wins. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm rooting for Mesh's success. <laughs> all right. Well, we are at the end of our time, which means it is time for the rapid fire question round. Everyone's okay. favorite part of the show. I will ask fast questions and you will have hopefully fast answers. <laughs> Jessica, are you ready for the rapid fire question round? Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's do it. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? My favorite book would be The Snowy Day, which is mm. a children's book by Ezra Jack Keats. It's a really simple, charming story, but it was the first book I think I read like in preschool that actually reflected the community that I was growing up in. So it's incredibly diverse. All of his books are incredibly diverse and it's an urban area. It's not like this idyllic suburban pastoral Mm -hmm. setting. He's like on city streets and there's graffiti and there's like stuff happening. And it was probably written in the 60s and Mm -hmm. it was, but it's so well done. It's beautiful. And I grew up thinking everybody had that book and they did. (laughs) I realized like what it it did for me. Yeah. Like it's beautiful. So yeah, that's the book I like to give new parents. Well, I'm a new parent. So I'm going to go ahead and order that book. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Great. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? Yeah. I like to talk about something that I love personally. So if mm. it's a general community, it can be whatever I want, whatever I want to talk about that day. So sometimes it'll be music or something like that. And so writing about it, the thing that I love and why I love it and what it's done for me or how it's affected my life. And then asking other people, their stories. Like, what do you have that's like this? People love to contribute positive stories. And then it also gets them talking to each other because maybe somebody relates to the thing that they're saying. Mm-hmm. So it ends up building sort of this big conversation. Mm. I love that. I love that because we often think when we're building community that we have to figure out what other people love and write about that, like write mm-hmm. what they love. Yeah. But actually the content that always seems to resonate the most is when I just talk about something that's important to me. And then the people mm-hmm. who agree with that or align with that can jump in too. Yeah, exactly. Making it human, letting people participate. Love it. All right. Next question. What was the uh, funniest or most interesting Secret Santa from the Reddit Secret Santa or Reddit gifts story you ever heard about? There are so many. This is actually really hard to <laughs> narrow down. Choose one. Yeah. So one of the earliest really creative gifts that happened was... I believe the person receiving the gift was a medical student or possibly a surgeon. It's a long time ago, but that's basically the information that I remember. And somebody sent them the gift. It was a big plush shark and there were instructions to perform surgery on the shark. So the recipient made a post in the gift gallery, which is where you say thank you to the person who sent the gift. 
there was all these pictures of them doing the surgery on the shark with like, they had a scalpel. They In like the know, actual <laughs> surgery yes, room. They did a whole surgery. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And I don't remember what the actual gift inside the shark was, unfortunately. I don't think that's the point anyway. No. <laughs> you know, like the shark was amazing. And then they stitched the shark back up. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like a whole Wait, process. Did the person who sent the gift know that they were sending it to yeah. a, a doctor, a surgeon? Yeah. So they tailored yeah. it to that. Like yeah. Genius. It was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was great. I love it. I feel like we will do another episode where we just talk about Reddit gift stories because I <laughs> think all so of them many. are probably so good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Next question. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out to lunch? Oh, gosh. Derek Pawozak. Mm, good one. Yeah. He has a lot of thoughts on ethical community building yeah. and community safety. And since those are things that I focus on, I would love to talk with him. I mean, I should just ask him. <laughs> ask him to lunch. He wrote design for communities too. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And yeah. he's just he's very smart about it and has so much experience with it that yeah. I think that he's just a wealth of information. Is he still doing community work? You take like he's, a hiatus. No, he's on a farm with goats. Hey, respect. <laughs> I, know, I think totally. that's where all community builders eventually end up. <laughs> Alone on a farm. <laughs> Somewhere really peaceful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. Okay, if you could give one piece of advice to all new community managers, what would it be? Build the code of conduct. <laughs> just, <laughs> okay. Just I bang that drum. It, yeah, I was told at one job, like, we don't need that. I was uh -huh. like, oh, you do. And she's yeah. like, no, we don't. Worry about it yeah, later. It's like, you are incorrect. <laughs> you're going to get Nazis. Like, you have to have it. You know? You're going like, to get Nazis. Yeah. And that's, yeah, people don't understand that, but really just build it, create yeah. it, have it. If you build it. it, Nazis will come. That should be the line. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. What was the most proud moment of your career? Oh, gosh. That's a big one. I think that what we did at Reddit Gifts with Gifts for Teachers mm. is probably my favorite thing. What that was, was basically we had teachers sign up with a wish list. And on things like the other sites where you set up your donation for teachers, I cannot remember the name of it right now. You had to have like a big project that you were funding. So it was like, I'm doing this mm. one thing. This is what I need like money for. for my, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And that's not necessarily useful for every teacher. What we found is that teachers need paper and pencils and yes. printer ink. So we wanted to just get them supplies into their hands. And we matched Redditors to teachers. So the teachers didn't send anything. They were only receiving. And people would just go to the wish list and send things. And it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of materials yeah. made it to teachers' hands. And... Some of them were just heartbreaking to read. We had to go through every entry to make sure that they were legit. And we had some that really just wanted food because their students didn't have any. So it was like non-perishable yeah. food, please. Yeah. And some were like, all of the paper is gone. I can't do anything with my students, you know? And like yeah. one teacher had a broken chair. So the person who got it replaced her chair. Wow. And like, awesome. yeah, it's just all these basic things that aren't necessarily big and dazzling, but help the teacher just do their job instead of hang out of pocket, which is what they normally do. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's something that I'm really proud of. That's really cool. Yeah, my wife's been a middle school teacher in inner city oh. schools for over 13 years now. And fortunately, we're in a position where it, we can do it. Yeah. But like she buys most of the supplies and mm -hmm. a lot of things herself. And yeah. My mom wasn't a teacher, but she was a secretary at a school. So I just sort of grew up seeing all of that. Yeah, it's well, that's a great program. Is that program still running? No. It's not to mm, bring it back. I know. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there might be legal issues. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, 
Maybe someone <laughs> who's listening to this will start a new version of it. Okay. What's a question I didn't ask you that I should ask? Oh, I don't know. I would have said weaponizing benign tools, but we just we discussed words with friends. So we've covered right. that already. That was yeah. Yeah. Any yeah. benign tool can be weaponized on the internet. Yes. Hmm. All right. Well, great. I'm a perfect interviewer then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I like to hear. Okay, cool. Uh, last question then. Okay. Uh, if you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice to the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Okay. When I'm going through something really hard, if I've done something wrong, if it's just bad and I'm beating myself up over it, I like to step back and think, if my friend came to me with this problem, what would I say to her? Mm. And then try to apply that to myself because chances are I would be really empathetic and caring to my friend. Whereas with myself, I'm not. But if I can do that and just think logically for a second about the problem and the person separate from me, it makes it a lot easier to treat myself better. And I don't think we're taught how to do that (laughs) very much. So that's something that I think people should think about. Mm. That's such good advice. I try to remind myself of that advice often. Then I usually forget it, but maybe this time I'll remember it. But that's absolutely spot on. The way we treat others is often very different than the way we treat ourselves in those Mm -hmm. situations. Absolutely. Appreciate that. All right. Well, I guess last question is, where can people go to continue to learn from you and find your work and check out Mesh and all the things you're working on? Yeah. Mesh is still invite only. So you can go to meshcommunities.us and request an invite or get on the mailing list. And it is in the App Store. So you can download it there. Yeah. App and Android or Apple and Android. And I don't really have anything personal out right now. All right. Cool. Well, people can listen to this podcast and share it around (laughs) then. And I know you've done some other great podcasts. I listened to your interview with Marsha Drucker as Mm -hmm. well. Another great interview that you did. So I recommend you all check that one out as well. And uh, Jessica, I really appreciate you joining me today and all the work that you've done over many, many years in this industry. I think you certainly had a big impact on the communities that you worked on, but you've also really been banging this drum of, of trust and safety and building inclusive spaces since way before it was cool. And <laughs> you're continuing to work on it and build products in the space and I think as a result of you being an advocate for that, a lot of communities out there today are more safe and inclusive than they would have been and will continue to be so because of all the work you're doing. So really appreciate you and thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. It's been great. Of course. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.